0: Imagine a world in which children are not only taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also to value other human beings, the importance of kindness, to recognize their emotions and develop pro-social abilities at an early age. Why do we focus on rote learning and less on helping children build resilience, empathy, and critical thinking skills? Because it's during our earliest years that we learn our most important lessons in life, lessons that will shape our values, how we engage with society, and lay the foundation of who we will become in our later years. Hello and welcome to New Ways. I'm your host, Russell Baker, the founder and editor of A Modern Remedy. Each episode, we sit down with a dynamic cast of innovators, changemakers, and trailblazers to explore solutions at the intersection of health, technology, and sustainability. This is the ninth and final interview-style episode of our debut season, and we are going out with a bang, a double feature, in fact. Today I'm talking with not one, but two of the leaders behind Think Equal an evidence-based early years education program designed to help foster socio-emotional learning, critical thinking, and key interpersonal skills in young people. In the first half, I talk with Leslie Udwin, the founder and executive chair of Think Equal. We spoke about her groundbreaking human rights film, India's Daughter, and the discoveries she made through the journey of making that film, how culture could make people lose their humanity, And the realization that early education was needed to help build a future where gender based crimes were no longer rationalized or normalized in society. At times, our talk does touch upon some unsettling experiences Leslie witnessed while researching and producing the film, including discussion of violence against women. Whilst these experiences have ultimately acted as a catalyst for social good, some listeners may find the early part of our episode unsettling, in which case, feel free to skip forward. The second half of this episode is with Lena Benete, the new CEO of Think Equal. And whilst Leslie provided the history and ongoing positive impact of the organization, Lena and I take a forward looking focus, discussing the future of education, the role of digital technology in the classroom, AI, and much more. The duo you're about to hear from complement each other perfectly. Leslie is one of the most spirited, impassioned, and articulate individuals I've ever spoken with. Her conviction, and dedication toward helping people, especially young people, is unmistakable, as is her relentless energy and commitment to positive change. Lena brings a remarkable list of achievements, worldly knowledge, and an appreciation for both historical, modern, and emerging education methods, all of which inform her strategic vision for Think Equal. Along the way, my guests and I talk about the impact of the program, both in terms of individual and societal benefits, the importance of empathy the values that make us uniquely human, and why we should strive for balance in our lives. Whether you're a parent, educator, learner, or someone who'd appreciate living in a safer and healthier society, this is an episode that hits on so many levels. My first guest today is Leslie Udwin, an award-winning filmmaker and human rights champion in every sense of the word. After finding success with several impactful film and television projects, including the docudrama Who Bombed Birmingham?, which helped overturn multiple life sentences for those wrongly accused of the 1974 Birmingham pub bombings, and East is East, winner of multiple awards, including a BAFTA, European, and British Independent Film Award, just to name a few accolades, it was Leslie's powerful and critically acclaimed documentary, India's Daughter, which told the difficult, tragic, and important story of a young woman's unjust demise at the hands of sexual abusers back in 2012 that is pivotal to today's interview. Leslie's experience of making the film, specifically the revelations of systemic cultural bias and themes of injustice, flamed her ambitions to address these pressing social issues, becoming the seed from which Think Equal was born. And now, Leslie Odwin, the founder and executive chair of Think Equal. Leslie, welcome to New Ways. Thank
1: you so much, Ross. Really, really glad to be here and chat to you about all of this.
0: It's a privilege and honor to be speaking with you today. In order to paint the complete picture of your organization and the important work that you do, it's important to first understand the thinking behind it. Before the mission, before the vision, there was Leslie. So who is Leslie Udwin and what is your mission?
1: Great question. Not often asked. Who am I? I am someone who cares deeply about human beings and someone who has lived in several countries in the world and therefore have a perspective of us all as one family. I've chosen my home, so I don't think of myself as coming from the place I was born in or the place I've lived longest in. I think of myself coming from all of the places um, that I've lived in. And I've experienced many cultures. I'm someone who worries about culture. I have a deep anxiety about the fact that culture is often analogous with limitations of the way we relate to one another. Culture is... Something that divides us more often than unites us. And it is something that I discovered on this very dark, yet ultimately luminous journey of making the film India's Daughter. Culture and socio cultural thinking is something that I came to realize programs us in ways that can be discriminatory and can lead to the most brutal violence. That is what happened in the case of the gang rape and murder of India's daughter, as she was called in the press. Jyoti Singh, whose life was cut short by, by the brutality of what the perpetrators of, of, of her injuries and, and, and death were programmed by sociocultural thinking to think that she should not have been out at night after dark. And that since she was and since she was with a man who was neither her husband nor her brother nor her father. She not only deserved what she got, they said, but we had a duty to teach her a lesson. That's what culture does. So, as I often do, sadly, I veer off (laughs) off the the path of the question. The question was, who am I? I'm someone who cares very deeply about human beings, ultimately. And I'm a fighter. I'm pretty fearless. I don't know where that comes from. Um, Actually, I discovered For the first time in my life in Belize a couple of weeks ago, that I'm not actually totally fearless. There was a boa, a snake in my room when I came in from dinner. (laughs) And I absolutely realized that I'm not as fearless as I thought I was. Anyway, that's best forgotten.
0: I don't blame you for being cautious around a boa. I think I'd have probably had the same reaction expected, you know, or otherwise. Serpents aside, your life story is certainly a rich tapestry, and I'd, I'd like to understand what events inspired you to start Think Equal. And what role did your film, India's Daughter, and the lessons you learned making that play into the creation of the organization?
1: So it was the making of this film. It was this extraordinary journey I went on, which looked at from one point of view, as, as I think I, I alluded to, was the darkest journey I've ever been on in my life. From another point of view, it was the most luminous because of the insights that I got along the way of this two and a half year journey. And I would not have swapped out one second of those two and a half years, difficult and bleak as they often were. We all, I think, or most of us, remember the horrific news that flashed across our screens all over the world when this particular gang rape took place. I have no idea to this day why. It happens every day. It happens in every country of the world, ubiquitously, relentlessly. Why did that particular incident stop the heart of the world? I don't know. Yes, it was so violent and brutal, but that one somehow captured the conscience and the imagination of the world. And the the protests that erupted in India across all of its cities from the very next morning and went on and on for a month and a half were awe-inspiring. And that is what inspired this whole journey, was those the scale of those protests. I pretty much fell in love with those people on those streets. And I thought very naively now, looking back. But at the time, I was convinced that this was seminal you know this was going to take us to a new place i was standing on the precipice of a new world in which gender based violence was to end you know and of course no protest no matter how passionate and vehement and long lived no protest can do that what i discovered along the journey of making this film was what could make that change it certainly wasn't what took me out there But essentially, I I made one rather unusual decision, which, again, you asked who I am. This is typical of me. I will go to the obvious very, very quickly. And I will not be. That's why I mentioned that I thought I was fearless, or I have been most of my life until I met the snake. Because, um, you see, to me, what's logical and what's obvious is what must happen. I find that to many people... What's obvious and what's logical is often what, well, that's obvious, but I can't do that because I won't be allowed to. Or usually people admit the reality of the situation. And somehow I don't have that um, filter. (laughs) You know, I just think, well, that's obvious. That's what must happen. And of course, I will get permission to interview those men on that bus who gang raped that girl and murdered her. Why wouldn't I? be able to interview them. It's the most obvious thing to do. If we want to change these perpetrators, we need to understand who they are, where they're coming from, and why they do what they do. And there's only one way to understand that, and that is meet them, sit with them, look into their eyes, find out what kind of human beings do this to another human being. So I'm often asked, how on earth did you get permission to go into those prison cells? And indeed, you know, it was the first time in in India, that that had happened, that someone went in with a tiny film crew and interviewed perpetrators of violence who were that seriously kind of, you know, in in, in isolation and and had um, the ultimate sentence, actually being sentenced to death, these men. And I answer very honestly, I asked, that's how I got permission, literally. I didn't assume I would be told no. Um, I I assumed I'd get permission. And I asked and I was persuasive and I got that permission. Look, it wasn't as easy as that. From that point on, there was a a moment months down the line where Director General of the prison then changed um, her mind because all of her officers, men, every single one of them, (laughs) coincidence, I don't know, all of them uh, told her that she was, Crazy and should, you know, withdraw the permission. But I managed to re persuade her. So I achieved the mission I set out to achieve, which was to find out who these men are. And in understanding that, I was able then to work out what is needed, what intervention do we need if we are to stop the perpetration of violence against women. And I believe I have the answer. And I'm living every second of every day of my life in accordance with that. That's pretty much how Think Equal was born. Now, there's a lot of kind of logic that I followed, almost like a detective, you know, if this is true, then this must be true. But if this is true, then this can't be true. You know, That's pretty much how it happened. I just followed the logic of those interviews and what I learned from them.
0: I want to take a, a bit of a left turn here and say, based on what you've just shared, what you've been through—that you are like you—you're you're the modern-day Batman or Batwoman, not only in terms of being a super detective, but in terms of your origin. Someone else could have experienced that trauma, the secondhand trauma of following that story, of digging into it so deeply, and come out the other side not a human rights hero, but a villain. Often in the comic book tales, the origin story of heroes and villains is—it's very similar one degree to the left or the right in terms of reasoning, and you have a very different outcome. But you decided to take those painful experiences and turn them into a positive. Is that something that you ever look back on? And how do we go about finding other latent Leslies that are out there, perhaps yet to go on their own journey and usher them toward the path of doing good?
1: You ask such interesting questions, Russ. You really do. I've never been asked these questions. (laughs) The truth is, no, I've never even considered not doing what I did and, and what I am doing, because, you know, it comes back to that question that, again, I've never been asked, who are you? Well, I'm someone who becomes, follows through, put it that way. I follow through on what strikes me as important. In this case, what I'm dealing with isn't just important. It's it's vital. It is What's missing from our world, and I join a community. Of course, I'm not the only one who who understands that one must invest in early childhood if one wants a world that is peaceful and empathetic and inclusive and that celebrates its diversity as opposed to, you know is divided by it. <clears throat> There's a whole community now, thank heavens, and it's increasing in numbers and in understanding and in vigor. I've just been to, the uh, UNGA uh, meetings in in New York for a week. And it was remarkable the degree to which more and more people um, are joining together to say early childhood. That is the gateway to our sustainable development. And we have ignored the brain-building years, not just at our peril, but at our demise. I mean, that is where it begins And pretty much ends, if you believe in science. You know, we're a world so driven by data, so driven by science, and yet the most obvious things we have tended to ignore. And we've neglected our children. And as a result, we've neglected humanity. And we look around us, we are hurtling towards catastrophe There's a a quote that just sticks with me. It was actually our founding patron, Sir Ken Robinson, who who told me this quote. Um, And well, he was so incredibly dear to me. And and the quote is by H.G. Wells. And he said, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. The thing I discovered along this journey making this film was what kind. Of education is key because it sure as hell is not the education that we have been meeting out to our children worldwide for two and a half centuries, which was designed in and for the Industrial Revolution and has hardly been changed since. The education system of all systems in the world is the one that has progressed the least. And given that it is the very engine room of progress. How on earth could we have been so blind to the science, the data, and to the importance of preparing our children for relationships, preparing them for life? You know, we've educated them to read and write. And the framing question of Think Equal, which is the one I arrived at, at the end of this journey, two and a half years interviewing not just those perpetrators in in prison, those rapists and murderers, but also their lawyers and And I have to tell you, that was the most important set of interviews, the interviews with their lawyers, realizing that their lawyers were actually worse in some cases in their beliefs, their utterances, their values, than the rapists themselves. What did that mean? That meant, in the Batman-like <laughs> uh, analysis and, and, and detection. All of them had been programmed. It meant that it wasn't a lack of education, which was a conclusion I first jumped to, that led to them having this primary belief system which enabled them to do these unspeakable acts. It meant that that education which the lawyers had, which was the highest possible Degree of education was worthless in in terms of respect for others, valuing others. And so, what kind of education was it that was needed to stop those rapists from raping, to stop those lawyers from, I'm sure, acting on what they believed and told me was the right thing to do in a circumstance in which your daughter goes on a bus? Late at night with her boyfriend, one lawyer told me he would take her home to his farmhouse and in front of his whole family, he would pour petrol on her and burn her alive. A lawyer, a lawyer told me this. So what is that missing uh, education? Well, all of that insight, the understanding that the disease that we're dealing with when we look at the catastrophes around us is not the violence or the greed or the selfishness that has led to the climate catastrophes, the wars, the rapes, the domestic abuse. That's not the disease. These are the symptoms of the disease. But the disease itself is the mindset, is the discriminatory mindset. So at the end of the day, um, that's what we have to change. And if we don't change mindset, we're going around in circles and we are moving towards, I've read for the first time in the last year, a number of articles about the not possibility, but probability of human extinction. Really, can we live with ourselves, having thoughts like this, writing articles like this, without doing absolutely everything and anything we can to change this? So that is what I'm bent on. And and to answer the question, what kind of education is it? I'll just tell you what is our framing question that I ask of every education minister, policymaker um, that, that I meet. The question is this, if you, and it's a question for parents as well, by the way, if you genuinely hold your duty of care To our youngest, our most vulnerable citizens, our children, if you really hold that seriously, how on earth can you say that it's compulsory for our children to learn numeracy and it's compulsory for them to learn literacy, but it's optional for them to learn how to value another human being? It's optional for them to learn how to value themselves or to lead healthy relationships. How on earth? can this be optional? It's sheer neglect. So that is what Think Equal is. It's about teaching our children to love, to love themselves, to love others, to love the earth, their home. And as I was sitting in those prison cells and sitting interviewing those lawyers, unbidden into my brain kept on coming like a mantra, like a a wave hitting a shore. Again and again, I heard Mandela's words I had lived in South Africa for, at that time, I think, uh, a quarter of my life. Um, It's much less now. (laughs) But anyway, um, into my brain kept coming this phrase, education is the most powerful weapon we have to change the world. And of course, I was asking what kind of education, having interviewed those lawyers. And I went online and I searched For I knew Mandela would have defined the word education. A brain as brilliant as that does not make a statement, you know, as strong as that without defining what he meant by education. And I found it like that because it's one of his most known quotes. He said: No child is born hating another human being based on the color of their skin or their religion, gender, any other factor, a child has to be taught to hate. And if he can be taught to hate, he can be taught to love. That's what think equal is. And we believe that there must urgently be a system change in every country. This must be compulsory alongside numeracy and literacy. Now, what do we call this? It's called several things. The nomenclature isn't yet consistent. But whatever it's called, be it 21st century skills, which always makes me collapse with laughter because we really didn't need it in any other century, you know. Anyway, call it what you will, soft skills, absolute rubbish. I mean, scientifically speaking, you know, (laughs) the empathetic thoughts are created of the same hard connections in the brain synaptic connections and neural pathways as working out a mathematical formula the brain works in only one way no matter what it's dealing with right so there's nothing soft about them it's a very patronizing phrase we call it social and emotional learning for well-being for psychosocial support and social justice and we teach 25 competencies and skills and not one less. We teach them tangibly and directly with resources, not in some academic framework that nobody reads or if they read, they don't fully understand. Or if they understand, they don't know how to implement. What tools do I use? What books? What, what songs? What poems? What We give the teachers or the practitioners, because their early years, very often in most countries, they're not even teachers, And we give them everything they need with a step-by-step guide. Read this book, now ask the children this question, invite this response from them. It's all very experiential. It's a partnership of learning. It's not trying to put things into the children's heads, or in this case, hearts. It is working with them to co-construct during these vital brain-building years, pro-social neuropathways, in their developing brain. And as long as you do this before the age of six, you can lay the foundation for the rest of their lives. That's simple science. Gosh, I've gone on.
0: Not at all. That was some wonderful context, which I think our audience will appreciate and which coincidentally answered a lot of questions I was planning to ask you. The insight you provided, stepping through the logic that led to the formation of ThinkEqual was, I believe, well-reasoned think equal by all accounts, sounds like the right education at the right time. So much of the development of the brain, especially at such formative years, rests on the use it or lose it concept, right? We're born with so many neurons, all bundled up in that magnificent brain of ours. Yet, if you don't exercise certain functions, come into contact with certain stimuli, they are literally pruned, jettisoned, if you will, as an evolutionary function. Just to linger on that for a moment, and I can only speak from my own experience in the Australian education system, concepts like critical thinking weren't introduced in primary school nor secondary school. My first unit of my second university degree was literally entitled critical thinking. That's what it was called. And that's a concept that is invaluable to me as I walk through life. But imagine something like that being taught to a child in a you know in a manner they can grasp and how that would change their worldview, the skills that would bestow upon them. Going back to what you said about valuing human life, it's not until you get out into the workforce, or sometimes you know, university, thankfully this is beginning to change, but it's not until you are an adult that you are given training, usually, you know, in the form of compliance from a compliance perspective, you know, on other fundamentals like racism, sexism, and so on. And this could just be rampant skepticism, but those modules feel more like protection from lawsuits than real-world values training. And if someone doesn't comply, you're likely to be dismissed or what have you, but that doesn't really solve the problem, does it? For the company, the institution, you dodge a bullet, sure, but then you have a fully grown person wandering around with some pretty questionable values, which can lead to you know more issues a danger to society, a failure of the system, an education system that mints productive members of society, but not well-rounded values-driven members of society. That person is trapped in their own thinking, you know, a thick layer of bias. It's that cognitive dissonance that across so many issues, environmental issues, as you mentioned, is something that You know, we've all experienced that family member we love who's, I don't know, been smoking for 20, 30 years and you have that chat asking them to maybe, you know, get off the cigarette so you can enjoy more time together. But sadly, we all know how that conversation goes because by then the mindset has been locked in. But starting early, teaching those pro-social, critical, fundamental lessons, what you're doing, it just seems logical. I'm hesitant to use the word right when talking about the approach here, but...
1: But Actually, Russ, if I may, it is right. You know, this isn't political. This isn't conjecture. Who can deny the universality of the fact that we should all respect one another? I mean, we're dealing with children three to six. There's nothing controversial about think equal. These are all absolute human truths. And anyone who has a problem with us teaching our children to love themselves, to love each other, they must have some serious um, issues if they have a problem with that. Sorry to have interrupted, but, you know, it just seemed to me very important to say that.
0: And I, I think, you know, who might be listening to this? So with these conversations, I always try to bring, you know, everyone along for the journey. And some people are already there. I'd recently spoken with an educator over in the UK, in fact, who works with young people. And I asked him what he thought was the most important lesson that he teaches. And he said, kindness, the value and importance of kindness. I'm reminded of the work you're doing. And I like to believe that the lessons and values that you're rolling out, you know, that's landing. There's a need. There are others out there who recognize the need for these fundamental emotional and social skills at an early age. How long do you think it will be before these skills or your program becomes a permanent fixture in schools around the world?
1: We're now in 30 countries. Of those 30 countries, well, I cannot even say we're in 30 countries without telling you these few facts, which I am so excited about and so proud of. Right, My whole team having achieved. Of these 30 countries, four of them have already agreed to mandate Think Equal for every single child across their countries. They have brought this program in alongside numeracy and literacy as the third core pillar within their national curriculum. So every child across these four countries has to learn it. That is the system change that we seek for every country in the world. We have another three countries standing by to do exactly the same as soon as we found funding for them. One of these is a small country. To give this programme to every single child across the entire country costs no more than four hundred and eighty thousand U.S. dollars end of story, no more to pay. Because Think Equal is a one-off cost. We're a charity. We keep costs as low as we can. A whole country can be financed by one person like that, right? The other two countries are bigger countries, Malawi and South Africa. They are going to need a coalition of funders. Okay, but we'll find them. It's only a matter of time. Imagine this. In Greater Manchester, which is a huge region of England where I'm based, there is an enlightened mayor. The education ministry, unfortunately, is far from enlightened. But this extraordinary mayor, Andy Burnham, and his wonderful team of the combined authority of of his region. They have ten districts. We presented, think, equal to them. They fell in love with it as a program, and they basically said, "We don't yet know how we're going to fund this, but we want to offer this to every teacher across our region." In England, as in Australia, you can't mandate. Sadly, so I have to say, I believe that in some cases, and this being one, if you don't mandate something that is empowering of your children, you're neglecting them, not mandating and saying, well, we leave it to your choice, is a form of neglect of our children. Okay, some countries are not yet enlightened enough to mandate what's important to take care of our next generation. They don't need to mandate it. Greater Manchester didn't mandate it. They offered it to every single teacher. They said, here's a program that is uniquely comprehensive, that teaches gender equality, racial equality, environmental stewardship, self-esteem, emotional literacy, emotional regulation, critical thinking, problem solving, peaceful conflict resolution, inclusion, celebration of diversity, I could go on. 25 critical competencies and skills to three-year-olds four-year-olds, and five-year-olds. We believe you should be doing a programme like this. We are offering it to you
0: for free. And how was that received?
1: We had an 82% take-up because the teachers need it. They know they need it. And Greater Manchester, not satisfied with that percentage, went of their own volition to make the most stunning five-minute film of their teachers and children. Telling viewers, you know what is so important that they've learned, why it's important to be kind, etc, and because they want the the remaining eighteen percent of teachers, right? This is a country that doesn't mandate, but a region that did this in the most exemplary fashion. They are my absolute heroes. Well, guess who they found the funding from to pay for this, not the education ministry. It was the National Health Service of England mental health in education teams and the violence reduction unit of the police because they know they know the relationship between early childhood brain building and what children grow up to be and what they grow up to do there is a direct relationship and we neglect our children if we don't give them the right that is their inalienable right They have a right to grow up and not commit suicide. And they're growing up to commit suicide because nobody is helping them with their sadness in their early years, which becomes a habit of mind, which then becomes a mental health disorder called depression and leads to suicide. Now, why am I picking out suicide? Because I don't want this to be only about rape. And, you know, it's about self-harm as well. It's about the fact that our children now are in a major mental health crisis. The World Health Organization predicted a second pandemic. We are in the eye of the storm of that pandemic. One in five of our children have mental health disorders. And all we're doing is piling up the trouble. Mental health practitioners don't work with children five and under because they're diagnosis-led and they're crisis-led and they're overworked and overwhelmed. So who is helping our children? to deal with their anxiety. You know, we spoke about smoking earlier, and you rightly said, if you see someone you love smoking heavily, you really, really want to stop them because you know what it's going to do to them. Well, let me tell you that it is a medically, scientifically proven fact that anxiety untreated in early childhood is 20 times stronger a predictor than tobacco of cardiovascular disease in later life of diabetes, and of cancer. So this isn't conjecture. This isn't opinion. This is science. It's data. It's a medical fact. Why are we ignoring it?
0: Well, illness is illness. Just because something is manifesting in a different way, that it may not be physically visible, it's no less important to address, especially when it comes to children.
1: And it's our children. And it's our world. And it's our next generation. We have a duty of care. To them,
0: do you think, with the issues you've faced in some areas in terms of funding, in terms of rollout, and I hate to say on a long enough time frame, because many of these issues we've spoken about are beyond urgent, beyond pressing. But do you see a future where some of these children who've gone through the program then become the policymakers of the future, and are then more likely to be in support of Think Equal, where we might be talking about an uptake that increases? you know, exponentially over time?
1: Absolutely, most certainly. There is no question of that. I mean, sadly, we cannot change, fundamentally change people above the age of six without therapy, enormous effort. I'm not saying it's not doable. Of course it's doable, but it's not realistically doable at any sort of scale because you need to unlearn what you've learned because habits of mind and emotion regulation pretty much flatline as far as their patterns are concerned. Habitual ways of responding are just that, they're habitual. And at six, they're pretty set for the rest of your life. Of course, you can go in, make enormous efforts, unlearn those habits of mind and relearn new ones, but it's very difficult to do. And it will cost thousands of dollars per individual. If you look at how much think-equal costs, doing it easily, obviously, simply, and quickly in the early years, it amortizes over, a say, a decade, which is the minimum these materials are going to last in this one-off initial cost, right? It amortizes to about one pound per child, less than the cost of a school meal. To transform that child... Into a thinking, sentient, intelligent, kind, emotionally intelligent, equal, inclusive, loving human being who has well being, happiness. <laughs> who wouldn't want this? Who in their right mind wouldn't come together and pay for this, be it in their own country or another, if they have the ability to support that? In Australia, by the way, um, we are in about 70 classrooms. Um, In Melbourne and Queensland, and we've done a randomized control test, which is the gold standard of evaluations. We've done three of them around the world. Australia is one country we've done that in. With Yale University and Federation University, we have had exactly the same results in these three very disparate countries. Botswana, in Africa, Australia, Colombia. Very different countries. Same results because children are children and human beings are human beings the world over.
0: Interesting. So I presume the inverse is true then, that you're seeing lower levels of those negative traits across the board as a result of exposure to the program and higher levels of the qualities, the pro-social and emotional and positive mental health outcomes in children.
1: Massive reduction in anger and aggression, in anxiety and withdrawal in antisocial attitudes and behaviors, massive increase in emotion regulation, pro-social behaviors, empathy, etc. It's a no-brainer, really. It's, it's just so obvious. Beyond Blue is one of the programs, and I, I have a feeling it is a Melbourne-based program.
0: Yes, they are headquartered here in Melbourne.
1: Well, Beyond Blue has uh, evaluated Think Equal, And it's one of, I believe, the four programs on its menu that has ticks in every single one of the categories.
0: I'm not surprised by the results of those studies. It might be difficult, a challenge to raise funding abroad to get the program in international schools, but as you said, it's a no-brainer. Not just at the individual level, but the societal level. The return on investment of that low initial cost, when you factor the pro-social, transformative effect that the program has again beyond the individual all of the second order effects the positive interactions that the person is having as they move through life all that such a small investment now for such a huge upside in the future and that's not even factoring the cost of crime which you know one would imagine is such a major financial drain on communities
1: correct because and that's why the national health service is funding it here in England. That's why the Violence Reduction Unit is, is funding it, because they understand that the social costs are going to be decimated once a critical mass of classrooms are teaching this programme. Just one chilling statistic. It takes exactly the same amount of money to give Think Equal to 48,000 children over a 10-year period. Okay, 4,800 in year one, but 10 cohorts the same cost, 48,000 children, exactly the same amount of money to pay for the incarceration costs in a prison cell over one year of one violent offender, one violent offender or 48,000 children changed, transformed to not grow up and commit violence. I rest my case. (laughs) I mean, really. (laughs)
0: <laughs> those numbers are absolutely wild. And are those just UK figures?
1: Those are UK figures. It costs £48,000 per year to house one violent offender in prison. And £48,000 over 10 years, is it's a pound a child. So, you know, if you want to make the comparison one year to one year, then it's 10 violent offenders for 48,000 children. or 4,800 children for one violent. I mean, <laughs> you know. I, the question I keep on asking is, do they have a calculator at the
0: Treasury? Oh, <laughs> if if we had think equal two, three hundred years ago, uh, I wouldn't be, Australia wouldn't have existed because, you know.
1: Well, Russ, Russ, that's a double-edged sword. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we all want Australia to have existed.
0: <laughs> um, there's a strong chance I'd be speaking to you in a different accent. Uh, But going back to the beginning of our chat, you mentioned you were at the UN for the General Assembly recently. What did that entail and what activities did you get up to?
1: So we are part of an education task force of an extraordinary mission called Mission 4.7. Let me just explain the title. The Sustainable Development Goals. we all know of them, I, I hope. They expire in 2030, and by 2030, we are supposed to have achieved as a world no poverty, no hunger, gender equality. There are 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Goal 4 is education. Goal 4.7 is quality education. Goal 4.2 is early childhood education. So we sit within Mission 4.7. The chairs of this mission are... Jeffrey Sachs, one of the greatest economists uh, in the world. Pope Francis, who has a global compact for education, think equal, also sits on Pope Francis's Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. Um, Ban Ki-moon, the former Secretary General of the UN, is a chair of Mission 4.7. And finally, Stefania Giannini, who is the uh, Assistant Director General of UNESCO. So Think Equal is on their education task force. We are their flagship early years programme. And so on the first day after I arrived, I was moderating a panel of four education ministers, two of whom are our countries who are implementing Think Equal at full scale across their whole countries, the other two of whom... I hope now we will have as countries, uh, Dominica and Sierra Leone. Certainly the, the ministers were incredibly taken with Think equal And, you know, over the course of a week, we attended meetings. We had various meetings um, with UNESCO, the Global Partnership for Education, World Bank, UNICEF, who are also partners of ours in a number of countries. And it was an incredibly productive, you know, week of making plans, moving things further ahead. I now have this extraordinary CEO um, at my side, Lina Benete, who is just the best decision I ever made in my life, was bringing her in to think equal. And she's come to us from 20 years of experience at UNESCO and uh, Global Partnership for Education and the World Bank. Um, And so I entrust to her this next phase of growth that we must encompass now, because it's it's about now exponentially growing and expanding. We must reach. We probably won't before I die. I'm too old, I think. I wish I'd started much earlier. But, you know, we must reach, we will reach every child in every classroom, in every country in the world. And, I hope in the meantime, more and more children will be going into early year settings, classrooms. That is the tendency in the world. India, for example, about two years ago, decreed that free public education will now start not at six, as it always has, but at three. So, you know, that is when children need to start being socialized, educated, supported and empowered.
0: Just being mindful of time here. You've already been so generous here. Uh, and we'll be speaking with Lena, your new CEO, after this. But are you okay to go for a few more minutes to answer a few more questions?
1: I'm okay to go for another two weeks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I'm enjoying this.
0: Fantastic. <laughs> On that note, what is your favorite part of the job?
1: It's persuading, really. Um, that's my favorite part. I think to some degree I'm a realist and... And I am quite persuasive because I believe in this with every single atom of my being. And I can't help but be persuasive um, because I know what I know and I can communicate that. That is my favorite part because I think many people really do understand this fundamentally. The persuasion lies in that distance between what they know And what they decide to do about it. Because, of course, it's always easier for us to say, well, we'll deal with that later. We have a more pressing issue here. But to persuade those who have the power to affect this change. And there are many such people. They are not just the ministers of education or their uh, permanent secretaries or their, you know, there are, in some cases, teachers of individual schools, there are funders foundations, individuals who have spare cash. You know, how many million do you need to leave to your children and have an amazing life yourself? You can spare something to fund an entire country of children to have positive life outcomes, you know. So persuading all of these actors, and I call them stakeholders because we all have a stake in a world that, uh, the world that think equal works towards. That's my favorite part of the job. Uh, It's where the results lie and I'm getting pretty good at it because I'm practicing a lot. (laughs) So (laughs) that's the honest answer of what my favorite part of the job is. Of course, I also love the stories that come in every week. We get Scores of stories. We're now in so many thousands of classrooms and teachers reach out and they're enthusiastic about the program. And someone will write, several people write every week to say, here's a story that you won't believe. How how this child who came in as this and is now this after a mere five months, how this child has transformed. How can this be? Why have we never done this before? You know, just beautiful human stories. Videos we get all the time of children flourishing, children thriving. Of course, that's the other favorite part. But I guess I'm so action-oriented. I'm not satisfied by just knowing that this whole ocean of children are being transformed. I need everyone to have this. It's it's a human right to have the right kind of nurturing start to your life.
0: I had a feeling when asking you that question just now, that you were going to give an amazing answer because it is so evident, not only in your response just now, but throughout our whole discussion, that the values, the vision of Think Equal, it's in your DNA. And how easy it is to advocate for something you believe so passionately to be true. If I ask you that question at the beginning, I think the whole hour would have been spent just on that because it is so clear that you love everything about this organization and the impact it has on the world.
1: I do. I do love it. Every second of it. I really do because I'm so rewarded by it and I see the the difference, you know, and I see actually how easy it is. It's exceptionally easy. This is the ridiculous thing. This is the thing that also actually sometimes makes me sit here so frustrated. You know, we should be moving at an even greater pace. And we are collecting maybe a country every two, three weeks. It, it's we're not always funding it immediately. So, you know, having the country standing by is one thing. It's brim full of joy, this work.
0: That is beautiful to hear. A question I like to end on, one that I ask all of the guests who come on the show, and one that I'm always curious to hear answered, especially from change makers like yourself, is about seeking solutions and fostering optimism. Something that you quite clearly have a passion for and are quite skilled at. And that question is, we are faced with many challenges today, both for people and the planet. In your own words, what would you say is a modern remedy for those issues?
1: A, modern remedy, well, of course, it's 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 a very hard question to answer, because this modern remedy lies in the hands of adults whom it is incredibly difficult to change, right? The modern remedy is to admit the third vital component to education. The modern remedy is to stop seeing education as a conveyor belt between classroom, and labor market, the modern remedy that is needed for pretty much everything from where I sit is for consciousness to change and for us to understand that we've been programmed to see the accumulation of wealth and money as our God. We've been programmed to see that as the purpose of existence. That is not the purpose of existence. I've learned, sadly, quite late in life, at 57 I started this work, right? That's pretty late to start a new career. But it's not a career. It's a purpose. It's a life mission. I refuse, and I'm only telling you this. I don't often tell this to people, but I'm telling you this because you've asked the question. It's a tradition of this program. And I'll honor that tradition by being completely open and and fully answer the question. I refuse to take a salary for my work in Equal. The reason I went and I haven't ever since I started it, we do have money now to pay people you know we have a, a staff of 20, we pay proper wages. Um, we have some expensive staff members, but I will still not take a salary because I measure that in children who can be reached, right. I learned late in life that money and ambition is not the remedy for an individual human life, right? The remedy is community, collective thinking. The remedy to climate change is for us to value our common home, the earth, to value the planet, each of us to do those things that are going to save the planet and save humanity. It's a huge question. What is the modern remedy, the, 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 the solution? For me, it's a consciousness shift. It's a change of mindset, which is ultimately what I'm trying to achieve with every second of every day I live. We need new values, a new primary belief system and new priorities. And we only need to look at the closest war to us. Just look at Ukraine. Look at Yemen. Forgotten war that's been going on for how many how can we live with ourselves knowing that our fellow human beings, who just happen to have been born in a different place on Earth, are being destroyed? Life is as nothing. Money counts. It's it's all the wrong way around. To me, that's what the modern remedy is, has to be, or the solution has to be. And without that solution, we go nowhere.
0: Again, doesn't surprise me that you're able to articulate that big question in such a beautiful and impassionate way. I love where you took that, how you applied that to so many real world issues. We have, as humans, the ability to acclimate, but as you said, that's a double-edged sword because on one hand, you can survive through tough times, but on the other, we can forget about what's pressing simply because we are so distracted or you know, in the case of world wars or climate, animal and human rights issues, we're separated from the suffering to such a degree that it's not in our purview. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. It has been a wonderful experience talking with you today, learning more about the mission of Think Equal and the tireless work that you and your organization are doing, helping to create a better future for the next generation of kids all around the world. Where can we point people to find out more? Where, where should they go?
1: Thank you so much. And we can't end without saying www.thinkequal.org. Please go on, see the work and support the work. We can't do this without people supporting us.
0: And if educators, parents, or organisations want to get involved, what's the first step?
1: So all they have to do is reach out. We'll have a conversation fairly immediately. We take these reach outs incredibly seriously. Um, it's what we live for is to build our, um, collective of people who care about this and will act, um, for this mission. And we will, you know, we'll find a way for you to be involved on the website. Of course, there is a contact. All you have to say, if you want to talk to me, just say, Leslie has said, I can reach out to her and, and I will then answer you literally.
0: Okay. We'll make sure to link everything in the show notes as well. Leslie, again. It's been wonderful speaking with you today, and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation with Lena as well.
1: Wonderful. And I'd love talking to you, Russ. It's been really, really delightful. Thank you very much.
0: And now I'd like to introduce another important figure at the organization, and that's their new CEO, Lena Benete. With over 20 years' experience in education strategy development, program design, and leadership of teams in education contexts the world over, plus time at both UNESCO, the World Bank, and the Global Partnership for Education, there's seemingly no one better positioned to help guide Think Equal, its facilitators, and most importantly, its young cohort of students into the future. And that's what this second part of the conversation is all about. With Leslie, we explored the formation of Think Equal, the core mission and the factors that led to the creation of the organization, and the company's ongoing social impact. Now, I'd like to pivot and focus not only on the here and now, but also where the program might be headed in the future. Here's Lena Benete, CEO of Think Equal. Lena, welcome to New
2: Ways. Thank you.
0: <laughs> where does the show find you today? From where in the world do you join us?
2: So I'm uh, actually joining from uh, Lithuania. When I started with Think Equal, I went back to Lithuania after 25 years. I mean, this is where I'm from originally. But I'm a global citizen. I live in many countries uh, around the world.
0: Uh, 25 years. Things must have changed somewhat since the last time you were there.
2: Yes, that's for sure. Lithuania developed a lot. Vilnius is actually a very nice city to live in. It's really good quality and life balance. And since Think Equal is remote type of work, all the colleagues are working remotely. I mean, this was a good opportunity for me to move to Lithuania from uh, Paris. That was my last uh, location where I was based. Speaking of big moves, you're
0: now the CEO of a hugely impactful organization who brings a wealth of industry experience to the role. For context, I'm curious to know more about the person behind the title and how you got to where you are today.
2: Since my, uh, actually my even early education, there was a forming of a person that I am today. I mean, since I was uh, a child, I was very much interested in different uh, cultures around the world. My most favorite stories were fairy tales from different countries, especially Middle East, because the culture seemed so different from my own culture, Lithuania. It seemed quite glamorous. Then I had friends from all around the world, Indonesia, India, Africa. And I would ask very specific questions about the culture of the people uh, from those countries. Usually I didn't get the answers that I was expecting, even though I was very happy to share my, my culture. And it led me to pursue studies in United States to Lithuania's independence. We had a lot of relatives in the U.S. because of our complicated history in Lithuania. And when um, the walls opened up and Lithuanians had an opportunity to go anywhere they wanted around the world, this was a perfect opportunity. And I got a scholarship, actually, in a small liberal arts uh, university in Kentucky, which was a bit of a culture shock. (laughs) but uh, also expanded my horizons a lot because there were students from different countries uh, and also students from Appalachian region. And uh, we had opportunities to go and study abroad. For example, I went to to Malaysia and Thailand. uh, And this uh, also opened up opportunities uh, for me uh, further. And I ended up eventually uh, working in Asia, actually in Thailand. So when I finished my studies, my bachelor's and my master's, I was looking for jobs in Washington, D.C. because I had economics background I, and I ended up working in um, Africa Human Development of the World Bank. So this was the start of my journey with development that. I got into a young professional program at uh, UNESCO and I started a career there. So I was working at global level on uh, global uh, education financing policy Uh, in Paris, in headquarters, and after that I moved to um, regional office in Bangkok. After that, I ended up in uh, Almaty cluster office covering four countries in Central Asia, and I managed a large uh, program which had a big focus on competency-based education. So this was the start of my interest and passion in mainstreaming competencies for, for the twenty first century. And when I went to UNESCO office in Ramallah, I worked in the West Bank and Gaza, where there was a big teacher training component. Lastly, my my last assignment was with the global partnership for education. I got the job to, to be a country team lead for um, Uzbekistan, Laos, uh, Mongolia, and Ukraine. So quite diverse countries that I was responsible for helping uh, to influence the education reform process there by providing guidance uh, from the Global Partnership for Education and also bringing in large scale financing where all the donors were aligning their financing. So I I got a very broad set of competencies and experience, but my big passion was really competency-based education and mainstreaming competencies uh, into education systems, because I think these soft competencies have a big solution of many challenges in the world. And when I met Leslie and I found out about Think Equal Work, uh, I was very inspired because it told me made sense that you have to start from early childhood education to, to start teaching these competencies for the children that would help to, to have long-term um, impact. Yeah, through all these. Independent experiences, um, I, I got to where I am uh, uh, now, uh, and I'm very happy to lead um, Think Equal.
0: Well, okay. You weren't kidding about being a global citizen. And are there any countries you haven't worked in? <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, that's true. Through my work, uh, I got to work in many different regions. I uh, have still not lived in Africa and Latin America, but who knows, maybe eventually this will happen.
0: And is that what drew you to work at Think Equal, The opportunity to work with, um, we'd say, or work at the grassroots level of education?
2: So I worked a lot with the young people, especially with the professional education programs, which were more focused on entrepreneurship, uh, but also we added the life skills component. And, and besides the life skills, I mean, the, the kind of values-based education, there was also a preservation of heritage, which is very important for the identity and, and also that there was a big uh, synergy to values. So it was at a higher level, the social emotional competencies, the life skills have to be mainstream across the education system. But UNESCO works at um, higher levels. I mean, it covers the entire education system, but uh, usually it's UNICEF that targets the early childhood education. So that's why I generally didn't work with competency-based education in the early childhood. When I heard of things equal work and the program prepared... It made all sense that this is exactly where one has to start because this is when the brain is forming of uh, small children and you can uh, set them on the right path to have positive life outcomes and uh, sound mental health. So then later you wouldn't have to fix uh, people but by trying to mainstream the competencies later on in life if, if they have this positive education experience early in their childhood
0: so i imagine that with the international multicultural nature of your career you've had first-hand experience with all sorts of communities experiencing different cultures across a broad spectrum of people both young and old with that in mind. Why do you think the values and the lessons that are part of the program aren't already being taught in schools? Why are these core competencies, these socio-emotional competencies, why are they missing from the standard curriculum?
2: I think, first of all, the education systems are very difficult to change. And I mean, they are most suited to the past. I mean, education was very theory-based and not so practice-based. And it becomes very difficult to change. Uh, What I have seen uh, in different countries, sometimes starting from scratch, it's easier to to put the country's education uh, system on uh, on a good track then uh, countries that are much more developed and their education systems are more developed, it becomes uh, much less flexible and difficult to change. And also values, um, social-emotional competencies, life skills, those are soft skills. And there is a big belief that we need to focus on academics. Um, actually, as artificial intelligence... Is on the rise. I mean, there are many uh, education policy discussions uh, happening. Artificial intelligence will be able to do lots of jobs in the future. So actually to balance that out, what do the humans need to focus on is on developing the human values. So there is the ethics uh, component that is very important because robots, artificial intelligence will never be able to replace that. Also, there is a discussion, maybe they're getting the twisted view of the world by learning from what's happening online, because, I mean, there are also fake news and, and, you know, lies online. So human values are more important than ever. But there is also a danger when certain... um, country context. There is not much interest to focus on on human values, kind of uh, social-emotional competencies and human uh, skills, because it's viewed maybe as intervention from uh, another country or, you know, trying to influence maybe the politics uh, of the country, even though it's quite innocent and it's really human values that everyone shares. So sometimes it's misunderstood. um, Often, as I said, it just there is not much interest in that because seeing the impact of these kind of competencies is also more complicated. Uh, There aren't very sound uh, measurements uh, existing. So that's why now we are very focused on uh, improving the evaluations in Think Equal and then trying to connect with different universities and and see how they can work with us to have more um, evidence.
0: So a lot to unpack there, but first I'd like to explore the response to some of those challenges you're facing in terms of differing international values. Because one would think that a bulk of what's being taught, kindness, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, that would be somewhat universal, right? Applying to people of all nations. I mean, I'm struggling to see the case against that
2: exactly exactly that and you would think that that it would be quite obvious and interesting for different ministries and governments around the world to teach it but human values are often also connected to religion and i think that's where it becomes tricky why there is no interest into a program for example coming from a Western uh, context or uh, another country, uh, you know, not not from the specific country context where you are trying to mainstream that program. So that's where it becomes challenging. And there are some enlightened countries where mainstreaming of social emotional competences is uh, happening because they see the impact uh, on the mental health and they see the long term violence prevention. Because th- there are some research. Uh, studies done which indicate exactly that. That's why in the UK, um, the Violence Prevention Unit of Police, for example, is uh, sponsoring our program because they see this link. Also in Belize, now they are training all of the teachers and uh, planning to teach uh, the People program in all of the kindergartens. So some countries... Uh, or regions have, have uh, you know a very advanced view uh, and, and and they see the benefit. But there are some others that need more persuading and they, they maybe they are not ready at the moment because they they don't understand it yet the same way as others are.
0: It would be a difficult one to assess in terms of reducing negative social outcomes because you know really you're looking for the absence of something which would likely take some time to eventuate, to show up. Generational changes, drops in crime, prevention of violent offending, things like that. What protocols are you using now to measure the efficacy of the program?
2: Mm. So we did some uh, randomized control trials. um, It was in Botswana, Australia, and in Colombia. The positive outcomes among children came out, but it's more qualitative than quantitative. We we, we had the study in uh, Colombia published in a journal. Uh, Those were pilot programs. So now we are interested uh, to do some evaluations for the countries, which we are covering fully or, for example, the, the, where there is very interesting co- uh, cooperation with um, violence prevention unit, for example, in UK. So it would be very interesting to show the long-term impact on the violence prevention in uh, the region. I mean, this is the, in Greater Manchester area for, uh, uh, where, where this program is happening, and now there are other regions in UK very much interested in our program. So we are starting dialogue to continue. So the issue is that in education systems, it's long-term results. Maybe we we can show the results at sixth grade level after we start uh, to mainstream the program in kindergarten. To wait until uh, there is graduation from school and uh, you know the adults already start working. I, I mean that's very long. Uh, I mean, of course, even longitudinal study like that would be very interesting to look into. That's why with education, it's always a challenge uh, because it's really long term results. And often um, politicians change and uh, in ministries of education, there is a lot of change in different countries. So there is a bit of challenge to show results. But we are establishing now different innovative partnerships and and trying to see, I mean, what we can show maybe in in a a shorter span of time.
0: Yeah, there's that pressing need, not only of showing immediate results to stakeholders, which might not be entirely feasible, but also to address some of the issues in society that could be averted through the power of your program. Then there's, of course, the challenge of our fast-paced world, You know, we're in an always on and always connected world where easy access to entertainment and digital distractions are mere moments away. Attention spans, right, of all ages, especially those of young people, are becoming harder to negotiate. Is that something that's on your radar? How do you better equip children to deal with a rapidly evolving digital world, AI and things of that nature?
2: So you just mentioned the digital challenges and I mean this is a big problem of uh, nowadays because kids already start using phones and computers from three years old and sometimes the phone is used as a a babysitter, so it's not, uh, you know, a good quality um, entertainment and occupation for a child, and it's not really play-based learning, where it's proven uh, that by playing with the hands and and doing, you know, crafts uh, and interacting. Uh, Uh, With the parents and uh, peers, uh, the child learns in the best way and the brain uh, develops the most holistically. So to counterbalance that and uh, to help children develop in a holistic way, it's important to have programs like Think Equal and in general to have play-based learning. Um, so Think Equal has paper-based books. Uh, I mean, we try to stay away from technology. Uh, technology is just used uh, to, to uh, partly train teachers, uh, and uh, still there is face-to-face uh, uh, program even for the teachers. But for the kids, it's pure non-digital approach. Uh, so it's books, which of course uh, helps uh, the brain to develop through the reading. And then uh, there are many accompanying activities, uh, which is uh, sometimes to do something with a drawing and crafts. I mean, playing games, singing, interacting with each other. So lots of social activities really helps the child to become more social and, and to counterbalance Actually, they have had technology exposure that would help to counterbalance it. But actually, at such age, uh, from three to six, kids uh, should have ideally limited technology exposure. But I mean, we know that this is not uh, the case. So, so we really hope that by having such an approach, uh, the kids uh, can have uh, better mental health uh, later on, even if they start using the technology more intensively. Uh, you know, they would already be taught how to regulate uh, their emotions, uh, to be more confident, more tolerant, uh, have better critical thinking, where at later stage in life, they would be able to deal with the challenges posed by the digital exposure in a much better way. And, and of course, computers are very much needed because also academically, digital skills need to be taught.
0: Of course. And it's an interesting approach using technology as a tool in helping to build the program, test the program. But then the lessons themselves are conducted in a tech-free, distraction-free environment. Plus, if I read between the lines somewhat, the skills you're teaching the children may actually help them to become better digital citizens in later years when they do interface with people online.
2: Exactly. And for example, then one can deal in a much better way with the fake news because they would already have uh, critical thinking skills. And, and uh, you know, there would be less cyberbullying, for example, because uh, the children at early age, they would be thought to be more tolerant and understanding of others. And
0: what about AI? Artificial intelligence is all the rage right now. Is that something that you see being utilized in the curriculum or perhaps as a
2: way to measure the impact of the program? At the moment, we're not really utilizing uh, AI, but it, it's a good point because the thing is AI can uh, help uh with many different things. I mean, also data analysis, and uh, uh, so I mean, we will. We are always looking for innovative approaches. So when it comes, for example, to teacher training programs, we can explore that, and maybe in the future that's what we will be doing. Uh, but when it comes uh, with the small kids, it's difficult to apply AI. AI is used with the older kids. For example, there are these artificial intelligence teachers uh, which monitor sometimes the development uh, of individual child. And it's much more difficult for human teacher to do that, uh, to follow uh, each individual child if there are many kids in a classroom. But AI could do that. I mean, for the computer-based type of work. So, uh, of course, you know, now it needs to be a joint approach with the AI. But uh, I would say at a later age, uh, I, I really believe that at early childhood education level, uh, it has to be very much face-to-face uh, learning, because it helps the brain to develop more holistically.
0: Our early years educators, on the whole, not using computers or digital technology for the delivery of lessons because i've been following the use of ai in later years education and that's a trend that educators in high school and tertiary institutions appear to actually be doing less as a response to distractions but more as a way to offset the whole notion of ai enabled cheating so they're moving toward oral examinations you know shut off the computers almost in a way Sort of turning the classroom into a version of the Think Equal program, where social interaction and free thinking ideas occur, you know, in order to really test what's being taught in practice and of course, theory based conversations as opposed to just rote learning, almost returning back to some of the fundamentals of teaching itself.
2: And and I could share that, for example, there are some programs where, um, for example, to teach literacy to the small kids. If it's a very small exposure to computer-based uh, activities uh, and it's monitored, I mean, th- this is not really a problem. The problem is, as I said, it's when the technology is used as a babysitter. But if it's well-supervised and it's based on the science of learning, uh, Activities of t- t- 20 minutes, yeah, with uh, using AI or, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, some computer based activities can be um, quite uh, useful.
0: So much of what we've talked about, both in our conversation and, of course, with Leslie earlier, has been about learning, teaching, education. I'm also curious what you're learning. Stepping into the role of CEO at an education organization, I imagine there's a lot of opportunities to learn there.
2: I I have been learning a lot. I mean, through my experience as a CEO, also it has been very exciting and uh, a great learning experience working with Leslie. I mean, as a founder, uh, also handing over uh, many tasks to me as a CEO, it has been quite an interesting experience and an exciting time. So the skills and the experience, it's very intensive and actually more so than I have had it in my, my life before. Um, So I I would say that's the greatest learning experience I have now. And uh, even Leslie and I, we have had some training with some organizations that help the founder to hand over to CEO, which which has been amazing. So I'm learning new skills of management and and, uh, flexibility and the kind of entrepreneurship in a type of uh, startup uh, environment. What about outside
0: of ThinkEagle? Are there any good books, courses, or media that you've been diving into lately?
2: On my free time, uh, when I try to relax, I, I read, uh, like, I don't know if you have heard of Running with the Wolves. Uh, let me see what exact title is. It's Women Who Run with the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype by a famous psychologist in the U.S., Clarissa Estes. It's about showing uh, how much history and knowledge is captured in fairy tales and myths over ages. Uh, and this is how older women were passing the information to younger women over ages. So it's it's really very interesting. Uh, I mean, this comes also to human values in a way, how some of these human values uh, were being passed from uh, Uh, I mean, through centuries and how it's important to have balance in life that, uh, for example, if a person leans uh, very much just into focusing on work uh, and doesn't have the balance, uh, I mean, spending time with the community or maybe uh, having some hobbies, doing some things pleasant for for the person and and for the heart, such as participating in art related activities or listening to music kind of this balance in life can uh, appear. So the book is really very interesting and kind of uh, makes me think also that, you know, I have been focused very much on work uh, and and sometimes so driven on the result. But it's important to do other things in life, like, for example, go to a concert, listen to the music, or maybe do some um, embroidery, uh, which I used to do as a teenager. But now I'm slowly going back to that because, yeah, doing Some crafts, I mean, helps uh, the soul and the heart, and uh, you know, to to balance things in life, and then you can succeed more in your work, uh, which is very intensive. Because my new job as a CEO is very intensive, and there are many issues to handle because it's in startup mode and and uh, internally in organization, we have many issues to handle and also by very quick expansion and lots of interest coming from different countries that uh, want our program. Um, so I, I, I need to be very focused. So that's why balance is important uh, outside of work as well. So finding
0: balance as a path towards sustainability in terms of your own spirit and mental health. And of course, balance is also a value that's integral to environmental sustainability too. Balance, that's definitely something I know I struggle with at times. It's an important lesson, right, that could be applied to so many areas of life.
2: Exactly. And I, I think also uh, all these values of being taught about preservation of nature and being one with nature And this is also what we try to teach through Think Equal because there are some books that are on a kind of uh, ecological type of approach uh, because, you know, about loving nature. That's why even uh, we would like to look into the impact. I mean, the kids who are taught, uh, you know, the values and social and emotional learning, naturally they would be loving nature more so they wouldn't hurt it. And, uh, you, uh, you know, there could be prevention maybe of climate change in the long term. But I mean, measuring this, as I mentioned, I mean, it's quite a, a challenge. But yeah, this is all ingrained in the traditional uh, stories. And yeah, in Australia, and and, uh, I mean, in the Native American uh, stories, I mean, Eastern European or, you you know, many cultures that you would take um, uh, around the the world. The thing is, uh, it's slowly disappearing, some of these stories. That's why it's important to write them down. When I lived in Central Asia, in Kyrgyzstan, for example, I found out that there are some of these stories that have been passed orally from generation to generation generation that there are people selected to, to to facilitate the transfer of this knowledge it's really amazing you know it's done in such a way and and it's very important that it's not lost so you know preservation of culture is very important i
0: could imagine i could imagine yeah. and what an amazing time though to be alive right we're living through a moment where you have those traditional stories programs like think equal but then these technological innovations ai All these types and forms of education coalescing, all happening at the same time. It strikes me as, yeah, just such a unique time we're living through.
2: That's true. That's true. That's why I think balance is so important. I mean, we need to to have progress as well and advance. So digital education and AI is also important, but how to use it... I mean, for the benefit of humanity while also preserving the culture and, yeah, different traditional practices so they do not disappear because there is so much history, uh, generational knowledge uh, recorded there.
0: At least we have programs like Think Equal that are helping to maintain some of those traditional universal values, passing that knowledge onto the children of today who might become the teachers of tomorrow, the solution to a problem. And in the same vein... I'd like to bring this episode home by asking a question that is all about solutions. It's something that we ask of all our guests on the show. And that is, we're faced with many challenges today, both for people and the planet. In your own words, what's a modern remedy for these issues?
2: I think teaching values and social emotional Competencies that will help to have sound mental health will be very important, and this in turn will help to have positive life outcomes, to have less violence in the world, prevention of climate change, better gender equality. Also, it has impact on improved literacy and academic outcomes because if you don't have strong mental health, many other achievements will be prevented in life. So, yeah, teaching social emotional competencies, I think is the most important. And, and that's why I took this job. And that's why I believe in this program from early childhood education, because I think it could prevent many challenges in the world if it's done uh, properly at an early age.
0: So healthy minds, healthy planet, healthy people.
2: Exactly. Because the issue is that COVID affected very much the humanity. Uh, And then because of the technology, as we discussed, the brains of children are being negatively impacted from early age. And then there are so many things happening in life. I mean, it's very fast paced, much more than, you know, what our ancestors lived through. So to be able to tackle uh, all that. It's important to have resilience, to be able to control emotions. And, and we see that uh, emotional problems are more on the rise than ever before, because kids just don't know how to tackle many things coming at them, too too many. And adults also don't know how to tackle all, all these issues as well. So that's why mental health is worse than before. Uh, also, the lifestyle is very different. Originally, People worked in the fields, you know, there was more agriculture-based activities, more connection to nature. Uh, and now there is not much relief, you know, to be able to balance things in life. So this has to be taught at early age how to do it.
0: Mm. Recognizing the importance of balance, values, and learning key lessons during those formative years that will continue to serve you through your life. If you'd like to know more about Think Equal, go to thinkequal.org. Lena, I've really enjoyed speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. All the best for your new role as CEO, and here's to the continued success of Think Equal.
2: Thank you so much, and thank you for this opportunity to be able to talk to you. And uh, it's great work that you are doing as well. The, the, the information about interesting programs and you know things that matter. Thank you,
0: <laughs> and that's what this is all about: spotlighting the change makers out there and telling the stories of people and organizations we're having a positive impact on the world and hopefully we're able to get more people tuned into the wonderful work you're doing at Think Equal Too
2: I will also listen more to your program because, you know, it's amazing how many like-minded people are in the world and it's important to join forces. I mean, through Think Equal work and different conferences, I I meet such also change makers and it's amazing how much we think alike. I mean, that's the way to change the world, right? That's it.
0: (laughs) That was a huge episode. Special thanks to Lena, Leslie, and the team at Think Equal. We'll be back soon with our final episode of this season, where we'll be making some exciting announcements about the show. So make sure you subscribe to New Ways so that you don't miss out on that one when it drops. It's also one of the best ways you can help support the show, as every time you'd like, subscribe, comment, or vote in one of our polls, you send a signal to the almighty algorithm that our show should be shown to other folk on these funny things we call streaming services. And that also helps us share these stories of change, of individuals and organizations who are making a positive impact with an even bigger audience. Everybody wins. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, reach out to us at newways@amodernremedy.com, at and check out amodernremedy.com for notes and resources from today's episode. New Ways is a production of A Modern Remedy. This episode was produced by Russell Baker with music by Simon Zinzowski. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.